I bring to you this morning a creation of Aisha's prayer for presence. Each of us has a story of conflict, a tender place often unhealed. And those places matter, we know they do. Because we care so deeply, are called so profoundly by this faith and to this faith. And to these churches, these institutions that bring that faith to life so imperfectly. And because these hurts are deep, I encourage you to go to your place of greatest strength and surest support. Go to the practice at the heart of your spirit. Meditation, Tai Chi, journaling, prayer. I've seen a lot of kayaking as spiritual practice here. Go to that practice to that place of greatest honesty and least artifice. Go there to help you remain present to the work of healing and transformation. Because it is in the spiritual discipline of remaining present that a new way forward will be found. Will you pray with me now? Spirit of life and love, great mystery at the heart of things, Dear God, be with us. Help us be faithful. Help us remain present even when we want to flee to some imagined place of safety where we can pretend that we have learned all we need to learn and that we have transformed all that must be changed. Help us to not simply retreat into our privilege or into our oppression. Help us find within ourselves the strength and the will and the courage not to flee, to stay in the discomfort, to stay through the disruption. Help us remain present and available to do the work we are called to do. Help us remain present to the work our faith is calling us to do. Dear God, help us trust that a way can be found out of no way and help us hold our broken hearts open to the love that can see us through. Amen and Ashe. In an open letter to my sister, Miss Angela Davis, written on November 19, 1970, author James Baldwin wrote, Dear sister, one might have hoped that by this hour, the very sight of chains on black flesh, or the very sight of chains, would be so intolerable to the sight of American people, so unbearable a memory that they would themselves spontaneously rise up and strike off the manacles. But no, they appear to glory in their chains. Now more than ever, they appear to measure their safety in chains and corpses. Almost 50 years later, America still seems to be measuring her safety in chains and corpses. 
It is difficult to find a shred of mercy in the hearts and acts of those wielding power in this nation at this time. I bring you word from Louisiana and witness from across the nation that water protectors are being brutalized and arrested for defending the earth against illegal and immoral corporate devastation. Families in search of refuge are being ripped apart and criminalized instead of welcomed and cared for. And we must keep asking, where are the children? And black children and young adults and elders are being killed by forces of the law without consequences of the law. And in the meantime, there is a systemic unraveling of the safety nets that many of you here have spent decades in blood, sweat, and tears organizing for, leaving more and more people homeless and hungry without health care or hope. Now, I lift up this state of America on a Sunday morning not to invite us into a place of despair, but to invite us as a people of faith into a time of collective courage as we journey through life together with broken hearts. Nothing that is not everything that is faced can be changed, James Baldwin reminded us. But nothing can be changed until it is faced. And that is much of this moment, right? Facing those hard truths that have been there for decades, centuries, yes? The Reverend Rowana Hamani, she's the co-president of DRUM, Diverse Revolutionary Unitarian Universalist Multicultural Ministries. We love our words. She writes, I imagine many Unitarian Universalists are trying to figure out what to do with our broken hearts. Teach us, therefore, to love. I do feel that we, as a faith tradition, are looking for more ways to get involved as activists effectively and accountably, to love actively in ways that truly fulfill the duties of tomorrow, as Jamaican Unitarian minister Egbert Ethelred Brown's prayer tells us. It is especially important, she writes, to be in relationship with the communities that have already been doing this prophetic work before the majority of us knew something was an issue. When one form of oppression comes to our collective attention, it can be easy to believe that we are the first and only responders. And that is a great way to overlook what has likely been ongoing in the struggle and also to quickly burn out in our own efforts to create change. Being in regular relationship with local organizers and communities not only allows us to engage in accountably crafting forms of witness, advocacy, and resistance, it can also take away the energy-draining edge that the shock of learning about these oppressions can bring. When we are in true relationship, we are no longer outsiders struggling to respond to a sudden crisis. We are friends and spiritual family supporting and continuing the efforts of people we know and love. And I just want to lift up and affirm here, just coming into Northlake, the visibility of your relationships in community are powerful. The poet Mark Nepo affirm, offers us to consider that staying in relationships is the challenge of our age. It is the work of our time. And I witnessed that happening here. I want to thank you. 
The poet Nikki Giovanni lifts up this challenging truth in her poem, A Theory of Pole Beans. It was written in honor of Ethel and Rice Dobbins, a couple who had married not long before the outbreak of World War II, and they lived in a segregated town in Southwest Virginia where they raised four children. Now in their senior years, Nikki became friends with the Dobbins and cared for Ethel many years after the death of Rice until Ethel was unable to live by herself and then her children came and moved her in. Giovanni came to claim them as ancestors and she lifts up their answer to the challenge of staying in relationship in this poem. A theory of pole beans for Ethel and Rice. That must have been the tail end of the depression as well as the depression of coming war, there certainly was segregation and hatred and fear, these small towns and small-minded people trying to bend taller spirits down were unable to succeed. There couldn't have been too much fun, assuming fun equates with irresponsibility. There was always food to be put on the table, clothes to be washed and ironed, hair to be pressed, gardens to be weeded, and children to talk to, and teach each other to love and to tend to. Now, pole beans are not everyone's favorite. They make you think of pieces of fatback cornbread, maybe a piece of chicken. They are the staples of things unquestioned. They are broken and boiled. No one would say life handed you a silver spoon or a golden parachute, but you still met, married, bought a home, reared a family, supported a church, and kept a mighty faith in your God and each other. They say love is a many-splendored thing, but maybe that's because we recognize you loved no matter what the burden, you laughed no matter for the tears, you persevered in your love, and your garden remains in full bloom. His Holiness the Dalai Lama tells us love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. And it is our humanity that is being challenged in this historical moment when there are so many people lifting up voices and policies and weapons in support of violence and death. Friends, we must have the faithful courage together to respond in this moment. And the good news is we have the ability. We just need practice. Margie Worrell is the founder of Global Courage. She says, courage is like a muscle. The more you act with it, the stronger it becomes. And I will just also listen. Sometimes you get sore, right? There's some soreness in it, but you do get stronger. Likewise, every time you take action in the presence of your fear, you dilute fear's power and amplify your own. It is faithful work, this choice to love no matter what the burden, to act with courage no matter what the fear. Now, there's a comedian who says, if we only did things we knew we wouldn't fail at, we'd all still be crawling around on our hands and knees because we fell down the first time we tried to walk. But I have to tell you, as a called auntie, I have watched many children learn to crawl. And let me tell you, that is a very messy, failure-prone business. It is, it is. So I think, I think we'd all just be lying around on the floor if we only did things we knew we wouldn't fail at, right, that first time we tried. I particularly remember the frustration of one tiny dear soul 
who was learning to crawl, and he would spot his toy on the floor, and he would rise up on hands and knees, only to howl in frustration a few minutes later when he looked up and realized the toy was even further away. Not because some mean adult had moved it, but because he had discovered reverse gear, and that was how he knew how to crawl. And so he was rapidly getting further and further away from his goal. And in the spirit of practicing courage, I want to share with you that not only did he eventually discover a forward gear, but before that happened, he discovered how to turn around and back up to where he wanted to go. Adaptability is key. It's key. And every time you take action in the presence of your own fear or frustration, you dilute its power and you amplify your own. And also, there is a time and a place for lying on the floor. But in this moment, we are called to move forward as a people of faith. Takia Nur Amin is a member of the Church of the Larger Fellowship and the Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism Organizing Collective. She writes, the truth of the matter is that Unitarian Universalism as a faith and a philosophy calls us to work towards building a sustainable, equitable context for all of us to live and thrive. And there's no getting around that. If you embrace and believe in our principles, dignity, justice, equity, and compassion, you cannot sit idly by in the absence of those ideals from our society. We are supposed to uphold as a matter of principle the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Yeah, it's there. How does anyone propose we get there if we don't take action to make it happen? She writes, this isn't about calling yourself an activist or an organizer or anything else. It's about being a person who lives out their principles in their home, at the job, in their congregation, anywhere else their life might take them. And weekly, as Unitarian Universalists, we gather together for a time of sustaining worship to recenter our sometimes broken hearts and to rekindle our courage for the living out of our principles in this life journey. I want to practice gratitude and celebrate your faithful courage this morning. Reverend Jim sent me a picture earlier this week, and I got so excited. North Lake UUs, I want to celebrate your transgender pride flag, flying high. It was designed in 1999 by Monica Helm, a trans woman and a veteran, which means a lot in this moment. And I want to celebrate your rainbow pride flag, flying high, as heterosexism rises up yet again trying to deny divine love inherent in every human being. And a little fashion trivia about the pride flag that I was excited to learn. It was initially designed with eight stripes, but there was a shortage of hot pink fabric available. And so they had to give up on that stripe and went ahead and consolidated the teal and the um, indigo together to the royal blue that we now know was designed by Gilbert Baker. And there are many new designs emerging, right, as we start to understand how to be proudly inclusive. Revelation is ever unfolding in this faith and in our world. And the collective choice to fly these flags under the United States flag is a powerful statement of moral clarity in an era when the US government is attacking the human rights of the trans community and the largest Protestant faith tradition in America has voted against the will of the bishop 
to support a legacy of hate. I'm not sure what level of moral courage was required here in Kirkland, Washington to fly these welcoming pride flags, but I'm so grateful they're there. I do know that the Live Oak Unitarian Universalist Church in Cedar Park, Texas is on their sixth pride flag after my last conversation with their minister, the Reverend Joanna Fontaine Crawford. Every time one gets stolen or destroyed, Go out and replace it. They actually have a stash of them now, so they're just in the office ready. Because they're clear in their call, just as you are, to broadcast welcome in their community. And friends, I do know I was overwhelmed with grief and joy. I was here for one of the Poor People's Campaign's actions in Olympia this summer. It was in June. And as we came over the hill, I looked up and there was a giant, pride flag, flying over the state capitol. This is amazing from Louisiana. <laughs> I mean, it just never occurred to me. And I grieve for my beloved friends and colleagues there for whom maybe they never imagined that it's possible that one day, but now I have a vision, Reverend Jim, one day, <laughs> on top of that very tall thing in Baton Rouge, pride flags flying during Pride Month, in Louisiana, the state's legislatures have chosen to keep the state's anti-sodomy laws on the books in case the Supreme Court, Supreme Court should reverse itself on Lawrence versus the state of Texas. Some of you may know that's the case that legalized consensual sex for all genders in 2003. 2003, y'all. Not very long ago. We gotta keep being brave in this moment. Our faithful ancestors were called to journey with moral courage as revelation continued to unfold towards universal salvation, an understanding of divine love that excluded not one soul. No hell beyond that which we sometimes create here on earth. 14th century Sufi poet Hafez sums up so much about what is true in this moment in his poem, A Great Need. Out of a great need, we are all holding hands and climbing, not loving is a letting go. Listen, the terrain around here is far too dangerous for that. And 19th century Hindu peace activist Mahatma Gandhi reminded us that non-cooperation with evil is as much a duty as cooperation with good. We are in a particular historic moment, but as you can tell from this wisdom, these struggles are human struggles, yes, as we collectively work towards liberation and towards liberation. And we are called in this moment to journey together with moral courage, to hold on to each other with love and care, just as our ancestors were called, just as our faithful descendants will no doubt be called. As playwright Anna Devere Smith writes, what we become, what we are, ultimately consists of what we have been doing. And what we have been doing as a faith is building a collective moral courage to help sustain us on this journey. Now, the Buddhists tell, that Margaret told this morning, revealed one aspect of moral courage. I want to invite you to take a breath and think, what are some other character traits of moral courage. 
And then as you feel called, I invite you to just share them out loud. Don't worry about turns. Resistance. Showing up, listening. Standing up, rising up. Keep coming. Y'all got them. I see the courage in your very beings. You know how to do this. Sharing love. Yeah. Yeah. You know how, right? You just have to practice. Imagining life beyond the economy, organizer Ethan Miller writes, we must connect the work of defending our lives and communities from colonization and injustice, the work of actively opposing oppression in all forms, the work of healing together from trauma and hurt, and the work of imagining and building alternative ways to live together and meet our needs as integral parts of a holistic movement for transformation. He has this image of a butterfly with these four wings that we need to defend and to collectively work together, the healing and the creating, right? These are all parts together of moving with moral courage. We cannot afford to divide ourselves, he writes, along lines. We must cease to participate in a culture of activism which tries to place final judgment on the importance, effectiveness, or radicalness of our diverse forms of work. We need each other. We need each other's differences. We need the many different things that each of us has to offer. This is about relentless humility. We do not know how to make the changes we need to make, and we will only discover them on the paths together. Ethical living is complex, but it always, always begins and ends in relationship. The ethical life, much like church life, is not lived perfectly, but lived humbly with courage. Moral courage requires of us integrity and creativity, perseverance and resourcefulness, humility and trust, but it does not require that we journey alone. This faith community is an active source of relational courage. Theologian Walter Brueggemann wrote that the task of progressive religionists is to be practitioners of hope in a culture of despair because no one can fully hope alone. Mythologist Joseph Campbell tells the story of a troubled woman who visited the India sage Ramakrishna and confessed, oh teacher, I find that I cannot love God. And he asked, is there nothing then that you love? Well, she said, my little nephew is precious. And he said, there is your love and service to God in your love and service to that child. Wherever you find your heart broken open to loving, however you witness the divine, whatever form your capacity to love takes, that is where you can find the moral courage to serve together. Staying in relationship is the challenge of our age and the work of our times. In a 2015 letter to the Washington Post provocatively entitled, You're Not As Virtuous As You Think You Are, Professor Nitin Noria shares, I teach a case study in which a senior banker asks an associate to present data to a client that makes the expected returns of a transaction look much more attractive than they actually are. When I ask students how they would respond, most say they'd initiate a conversation with the boss in which they'd 
gently push back. I then role play a busy banker who's on the phone, annoyed at the associate. What are you back here for? Haven't you done it yet? I'll take responsibility, just do as I said. When asked what they'd do next, the students generally fall into two groups. Most say they'd cave and go along with the instructions, and some say they would resign. What's interesting is how they stake out two extreme positions, very few having the imagination to find a middle ground, such as talking to peers or senior employees about the boss or seeking, seeking out an ombudsman. The aim in teaching this case is to help students see ways to behave more resourcefully, ethically, and imaginatively in the face of pressure, and to adopt a wider perspective that offers alternative solutions. Now friends, perhaps we can collectively agree that caving rarely represents moral courage. And while resigning is often painted as a virtuous act, it can have the effect of leaving communities at the mercy of predatory practitioners who do not have your ethical qualms, leaving no one on the inside of the institution to advocate for justice and mercy and systems change. Sometimes accompanying each other on this journey requires a willingness to engage in discomfort in spaces that are more nuanced than binary thinking would have us believe. And remembering that we do not have to make these choices alone. Significantly, this lesson about moral integrity requires a willingness to tend to relationships for the good of the impacted community. When I first entered ministry, my mentor offered me two bits of wisdom. Love the people you serve and do not isolate. And I offer this wisdom to you now, dear ones, as a mantra for this journey called life. Love the people you serve and do not isolate. We are all in this together. They say love is a many splendored thing, but maybe that's because we recognize that you loved no matter what the burden you laughed no matter for the tears, and you persevered in your love. You are practicing moral courage every time you choose each other, whole and holy, not limiting the breadth or depth of community by othering life experiences which do not mirror your own. In her 2002 work, Turning to One Another, change agent Meg Wheatley writes, there is no power greater than a community discovering what it cares about. Ask what's possible, not what's wrong. Keep asking. Notice what you care about. Trust that many others share your dream. Be brave enough to start a conversation that matters. Talk to people you know. Talk to people you don't know. Talk to the people you never talk to. Those people too. Be intrigued by the differences you hear. Expect to be surprised. Treasure curiosity more than certainty. Invite in everyone who cares to work on what's possible. Acknowledge that everyone is an expert on something. Know that creative solutions come from new connections. Remember, you don't fear people whose story you know. Real listening always brings people closer together. Trust that meaningful conversations can change your world. Rely on human goodness.
stay together. Friends, may we have the moral courage to make it so. Ashe and amen.